Hey queer friends, are you ready to be inspired? Welcome to Season 5 of Coming Out and Beyond, a podcast that shares stories from the LGBTQIA community. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Zanzel, and welcome back to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Stories. I am very excited to welcome Melissa Guyberson to the show today. Melissa has written a fabulous new book called Late Bloomer, Finding My Authentic Self at Midlife. She has published articles in multiple online and in-print publications, and she is the proud mom of two young adult kids. She and her partner and their cats split their time between New Jersey and Provincetown, Massachusetts. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's so good to be here. I'm really excited to have you. I have read your book, Late Bloomer, and I really, really enjoyed it. And so this is a really loaded question for you. But Melissa, tell me your story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, so much to say. But I'll cut to the chase. The premise of the book is that I had been married to a man for almost two decades, 18, 19 years when a woman had come into my life and we developed a friendship and I didn't think anything of it. And the friendship progressed to more than that. I realized I was attracted to her. And that was the first time in my life that I had ever had a physical attraction to a woman. Mm -hmm. And I still never questioned it. And I started behaving in a way that was definitely uncharacteristic for who I am in the world. And I was living the only life that I ever imagined, you know, married, house in the suburbs, kids, summer vacations at the beach. And my life kind of got turned upside down when this woman came into it. But it wasn't enough to get me to stop and think, what does this mean? What does this mean about me? And I was just sort of immersed in these feelings that I had never had before, ever. Um, And then a few months into it, I was at my local gym and I'm up in the uh, changing room. I dropped my bag. There's nobody else there, but another woman who is, you know, maybe a couple of benches ahead of me. She's not dressed. I don't see her face. She's putting lotion on her legs and I'm mesmerized. I Mm -hmm. just feel like, like I got hit with a stun gun. I was just absolutely mesmerized. And I kind of snapped out of it, you know, like shaking my head, turned away. And it was then that the question entered my head, am I gay? And I had never thought about it before. And even that though started were, me. Even yes. though you were in a relationship, her name was Raina, right? Raya, yes, yes. Raya. Even though I had Raya. been with this woman, I had been with Raya for a couple of months, but I never actually thought the question never came to my mind. You know, whatever it was, um, was just something that I thought was going to come into my life and go. Mm-hmm. And then my life would resume as it had before. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a little bit of a pause. And then I never imagined anything. I never thought anything of it. We didn't really talk about it. And 
So Rhea, and then you didn't like, you didn't start going down to the road of, oh, maybe we could, you know, maybe I'll leave my husband, maybe we'll be together, you know, nothing like that, because Rhea had been out for a long time. She was someone who'd been out forever. So that never happened. And um, so it really didn't like, even though you were sleeping with a woman, (laughs) it didn't dawn on you that you might not be straight? No. No, that question never entered my mind until that day in the gym when I just found myself mesmerized by the sight of this woman. And I didn't actually, which, and that's also unusual for me because I usually think about everything. You know, I'm I'm that person that will look at all sides of things. And I knew there was something that I was in this relationship with this woman and and that wasn't okay. I was a married woman. Mm -hmm. Um, But even that was not enough to get me to stop and think about it. Um, the power of those feelings that you have that first time, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's huge. And it was, and I had always thought something was missing in my life mm-hmm. and I never knew what it was. So I mm-hmm. was always looking elsewhere. Oh, let me, let me go back to school. Let me, you know, go back to work. Let me join the PTO. Let me become a stay-at-home mom. No, let me be a working mom. And I was always trying something else to kind of satisfy what was missing in me. Mm -hmm. And ironically, when I was with her, I remember writing to her, you know, if I died, I know what was missing, but I still couldn't name it. I didn't have the language. I didn't have, it was, for me, it was all about the feelings it was mm-hmm. all about that I felt this amazing sense of comfort, peace, excitement um, that I never really had before. Um, mm-hmm. So well, it was about know, feelings. It wasn't about naming it. Well, you know, it's interesting, Melissa, is that you just described, you know, most of the clients that I work with, because most of the women I work with are pretty high achieving women. They have all kinds of degrees. They, they've done all kinds of things in their life and they are, they have a missing piece. And so they keep searching for it somehow, some way to find it. And I do believe that's why a lot of us, um, you know, end up with all kinds of education and degrees, or we do a lot of self-awareness work, things like that. When you look back at that relationship now, do you think it was the power of denial? that was going on with you that like you were just, it wasn't until you were, you had your defenses down and you really weren't paying attention and you're in this gym, like, (laughs) (laughs) and like all of a sudden it hit you because I had a moment like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It could be part of it. Um, You know, there's so many and we'll never really know the answer. Is it? And it's probably a combination of many things, you know, Mm -hmm. some fluidity, Mm -hmm. um, there's some denial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I remember a funny moment when I was with, with her, I had gotten a chip in my windshield and it started to spread a little bit. It started out as a little bit of a crack and then it spread to go horizontally. And I remember saying to her, um, it looks like an L mm-hmm. and I said, you know, loser. And she goes, lesbian. <laughs> and I'll, I always remember that because it was funny, but even that didn't. So there was a little bit of that denial when I was in it. Um, but um, it, yeah, it, you're right. It wasn't until my defenses were down and I came across 
some stranger and just found myself in this space that uh I think it's when you open the door to the space that you may not be straight whether it's in a relationship with a catalyst because in our later in life community what Melissa is describing is a catalyst it's somebody that makes you realize you may not be as straight as you think you were and and that's who Rhea was um and um so one my next question for you then would be after you you started to like have these realizations, you see the woman in the locker room and, you know, life goes on from there. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But as your life went through on from there, from this particular stance, did you start to have like recovered memory of like something that you put in one box and you realized, oh, this should be in another box. So like, for example, a lot of my later in life people start to realize, oh, that wasn't a. I didn't admire her. I had a crush on her, you know, or, oh, that first experience shouldn't be in the shame box. It should be in typical behavior for someone who's not straight. <laughs> you know, that was me. So how about you? So I had, what's interesting about that question is I had never had an experience with a woman and a lot of people that I had met along the way, they did. And then they put that I aside. Right? I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raya was my first. And but I always knew I had said things that were unusual, if you will. And mm-hmm. those, it's not like I forgot them and they came back. I had always known about them. I had always known the things that I had said. I had always known that I was drawn to people in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just never thought about it. And I was mm-hmm. always so happy when I would have a friend and this, you know, this friend was was gay or a lesbian or queer and I just sort of connected and I almost sought them out because mm-hmm. I felt comfortable. I right. didn't explain, I didn't, you know, try to explain it. I didn't understand it, but I was aware of it. And none of it made sense because I didn't allow it to, because I, I didn't give it the time to think about it. Yeah. And I think that happens to a lot of us. You know, my definition of internalized homophobia is. Often I find people in the later in life community are often amazing allies before they come out. Like, and it's like, and it's really the the, the statement is like, I don't care who's gay or trans. I, like, that's not a big deal to me at all. And the only person, but there's one person who can't be gay and that's me. And so I find that a lot of times, like I used to always, like if I was at a party or something and there was a gay couple there, I mean, like you could not hold me back from going and hanging out at the party with them for the evening. Um, But now I realized that it was because like I needed to be with my people. And only time I ran into people like you did too, it was, it's very unconscious. You had no idea why, but like, like my kids would even joke up. There's a lesbian couple there here. Mom's going to go hang out with them for the night. And I did it every single time. And, and and it wasn't until I came out that I realized, oh, it's because I needed to be with people who are like me, even though I didn't know it, it was so instinctual. Yeah. It, it wasn't something like I consciously was doing. Oh my God, Barb, didn't we have a great time at our workshop in January? Things you gotta know. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. And for those who don't know, this was our workshop for women who are coming out. So many people signed up. It was great connecting with all of those women. And you know what, Emery? I think we should do it again. 
And we are. So we will be hosting this workshop uh, February 19th through 20, the 22nd. It's going to be hosted in the evening this time, 7 p.m. Central Time. And if you want to join us, just go to our website, comingoutsupport.net. That's comingoutsupport.net. Signing up is easy, it is free, and it is for any woman who is navigating the challenges of coming out. We'll see you in February. No, it's a gravitational pull. Yeah. And, and I agree. Um, and, and so many examples are popping into my head now, remembering um, when I did this and when I, you know, when I would work on a Saturday and it was a skeleton staff and there was that one person, you just knew they were gay. And I'd be like, hey, want to work with me today? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just uh, over and over and over again, um, I did. I gravitated to those people and I was a great ally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I was the one that stood up and said, you know, the whole argument about, you know, choice. And I'm like, you know, defending who would choose this? These, you know, who who, who would who it's, would choose to be a marginalized person who can, you know, lose their job, lose their, their home, lose your life, like who, you know, get kicked <laughs> out of your family. Who would who would consciously choose that? And that was me. I was very outspoken about it. And mm-hmm. it just felt like a human rights issue. That's right. Yeah. So so you met Rhea um, and you thought, okay, this is just going to be some, this is going to be a blip in my life's journey. And then you had that realization. And what happened next? Well, I <laughs> went searching. I just, I, I knew, um, you know, the internal kind of, you know, poop hit the fan and I'm, I knew I was in trouble. Something mm-hmm. was going on. I couldn't name it. I didn't name it. I just mm-hmm. knew that I was now in a space and this was bigger than I could manage. Mm-hmm. And I started reaching out to everybody under, under the sun. Uh, you know, if I saw you on a morning show, I sent you an email. If I, you know, did research and I, I had read a book and in the book, there was a scene between two women, a woman who had been married to a man and ends up falling in love with her best friend. I sent a letter to that author. Mm-hmm who was very kind and responded to me, but I was just searching and searching for anybody or any, anything that could shed a little bit of light on what was happening. Um, and I'm just going to say, you came out 20 years ago, right, Melissa? Almost? No, uh, 12. Okay. So 10 plus years. Yes. Since then, really in like 2016 that, you know, there's been a, first of all, there's been a long line of women that have been taking care of other women coming out later in life forever. There's a history. I can go back to the 1980s with women that have done this work, but really it wasn't until like 2016, 2017, where you could actually Google stuff and, and find it. Like the only thing I found in two, I came out in 2016. And the only thing I found was I Googled late in life lesbian and I found a support group. I don't know if you were in the old Lily group on Facebook, but that used to exist. And I found a support group of other women coming out later in life. And that was like, that was the only, like literally the only thing that was out there, you know? Right. But also, if you don't have a name for it, you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, luckily, I had a name for it. I know. Right. Like, yeah, I sort of knew that. Like what, what? And I was also unlike you. I came out without even having a catalyst. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I knew it was just something that I needed to go and figure out and explore. And, and so I, I like, but it was like, I was one of those people too, that wasn't like, like, I, I didn't get like, a lot of times people get very like anxious about like sex, stuff like that. I was, I was not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, you know, when I meet somebody I'll, I'll, you know, it'll be okay. I'll figure everything out. <laughs> and I right. did. It was very easy. Um, right. I laughed. Right, right, right. I think. Did you have that experience in your book where somebody kept asking you, "Have you ever done this before?" and they were surprised or something like that? It was that? her. Yeah. It was, yes. It was. It was her. She's like, "You've lied to me." I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "You've been with women before." I'm like, "No, I'm telling you, you are my first. But it well, was that- so natural. It was just such a natural. And that's that's what people don't understand when people don't understand, how could you not know? And unless you're in that situation and you can experience how natural it feels when everything else seems wrong, nothing seems more right than in that moment, being with somebody in a situation that's unprecedented for you. Absolutely out of character, but everything falls into place and it just feels right. And it's interesting because um, the first person I was with, who happens to be my wife, um, it just was one of those things. And um, and it was after I had left my ex-husband and um, she, the same thing. She's like, you, I, you've done this before. And I'm like, and that was like one of those things where I was like, sex is sex. I'll figure it out. <laughs> we all have the same parts. I, I know what to do. <laughs> So one of the things I found really fascinating about your book as somebody who has been in the religious sphere for a while is your your sense of belonging within Judaism and the loss of the sense of belonging when you came out. And I just want to say that I was sort of horrified by some of the rabbis and what they did regarding your sexuality and and also the divorce. Um, because it was the least sensitive thing I had like ever like, Oh my gosh, the judgment and the insensitivity was astounding. You know, as somebody who was trained as a chaplain, like even if I didn't understand, I would pretend. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, So tell us, tell us about that because it plays a very big central role in this book. And I do find that 80% of all later in life people have some sort of tie to a conservative religious tradition, though I do believe you were reform, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, You know, what's interesting is my sense of belonging started as a child who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and we were never Orthodox, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was surrounded by, you know, this type of Judaism. And it spoke to me and it it called to me. And again, I didn't understand it. I just knew that there was an appeal to me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that Judaism was going to play an important role in my life. And Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't in my home, it wasn't so important to my parents. And that's a gender thing. You know, I wasn't a boy, so they didn't go and do all the things that, um, conservative Jews, you know, or reformed Jews would do if they have a a quick question about that, though. Judaism comes through down through the maternal line. Why wouldn't they do that? That that, I was reading that and I was like, this was a gender thing, because I remember asking my mother way back when, when all my friends were in Hebrew school and they Mm -hmm. were preparing for their B'nai Mitzvahs. And, you know, I wanted that. 
And I remember her saying, no, you're not a boy. I'm like, well, neither are my girlfriends who, who are having it. It just, it didn't have as much importance to them, but they would have followed a gender role. Had I been a boy, there's no question I would have gone to Hebrew school. I would have had a bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was also a first lesson for me in terms of, oh, so I'm a girl, so I don't get to participate in X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And I started to feel that difference way back then. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew that Judaism would be important um, mm -hmm. in my life and in my future children's lives and searched for a temple um, that we went literally went out of our way for this particular temple because there's a temple I can walk to, but this was a 20 minute drive. Mm -hmm. And because I loved the spirit of this temple and I loved that they were so engaged in, um, you know, civil activism, social yeah. social justice. It was dynamic. And I just knew that they would be there to support my family. Should we ever need some kind of support? And, you know, what happened was, it's not like I came out to them. I never came out to them. Right. Somehow they knew. Um, they didn't reach back to me. There was judgment about me personally, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, I mean, I can't say it was because of my sexuality, but it was also in that silence. It was in the absence of this must have been challenging for you. Is there something I can do? Can I help you? Um, mm -hmm. One just stopped talking to me altogether. Mm -hmm. And the others just, you know, um, there was no softness. There was no gentleness that you would expect. From, from somebody, yes, absolutely. As, as also, as you describe this congregation, you know, it was very, very, um, you know, social justice minded, opening welcome. But there are, apparently you crossed the line somewhere and and you're and like a lot of um, and I know they were very they were a little bit more supportive of your husband, which was sort of ironic since he's not Jewish. <laughs> he was, well, yeah, he converted. He converted along the way. OK, um, OK. But they but they, they would have loved him anyway, because yeah. he's he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. guy. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah. And so um, uh, they really ostracized you. It became uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you're walking down the hall and someone doesn't speak to you, you know, or when you wave before you realize what's happening and they turn away and now you're embarrassed and, mm -hmm. and you don't know what to make of that. And you don't really know why that is but you just know that there's no open door to have a conversation to offer up an understanding an explanation um anything you know nobody was interested in mm -hmm. knowing what was happening and there was judgment um so it became very very challenging for me and i spent less and less time there so do you think that it was um because of your queerness or because, you know, in, in the straight world, when somebody is in a relationship outside their marriage, they often call it an affair. I do not see your relationship with Raina as an affair at all. I see it as somebody who was trying to find themselves and, and 
And especially with queer women, that happens a lot. A lot of women end up being with their catalyst. Um, that's that's more the norm than my story. Mm-hmm. Um, often they fall in love with somebody from work, from their lives, or their best friend, who's also married to a man. You know, so um, do you think it was more because of the divorce? Because that's the ironic part. Um, I I found in the straight world that in my very liberal community in Connecticut, it was more about the divorce, the heteronormative divorce than it was about my queerness. Though my queerness was very, very, the the ostracism was very, very evident. Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you for saying that, by the way. I appreciate your uh, perspective on that because I agree. You know, on paper, I could say, it. no, it's not okay to, you know, go outside of your relationship. But on the other hand, you know, I was called, if you will, and I, you know, something was moving me to find out something really integral about myself. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that it it showed up. So mm-hmm. I don't know, at the end of the day, I don't know what they knew mm-hmm. and when they knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did get that sense of judgment because I remember when we, and I write about this in the book, when my husband and I actually told the rabbi that we were separating, um, she approached each of us at different occasions and asked if we thought the other was having an affair. Mm. And there was this sermon about, you know, just this, this scathing sermon that, um, you know, people that go outside of their marriage, you know, it, it, it it's akin to like bestiality and, you know, warrants, you know, it's a sin that warrants, you know, death. And I'm like, really? That, you know, and, and it, what's interesting is, and that's fine because those words are there, but this was a temple that prides itself on, you know, being very open and moving with the times and adding some perspective that is more current and fluid, if you want to use that. There's a lot of gray area. That was very black and white. So as somebody who has preached, um, I am thinking that it sounds like the, the, the rabbi was working through some own personal stuff <laughs> that may have, um, you know, overflowed to the congregation. You know, um, there's a lot of times in preaching people, you know, it, it, they're like, oh, this will work for the, <laughs> but it's often because they're working out their own stuff. And it, it seems like a very, un- what surprised me about the reaction of the re- re- the leadership within your synagogue is that this was a synagogue that prided themselves on being open and welcoming and, and affirming. And as well as I'm sure if your kid was gay, that probably wouldn't have been as big a problem as this. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. They would have, they would have embraced it, opened their arms to it. Um, it's the, it's the way that my story unfolded. And, 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 and you're right. And it's funny because I was so traumatized, if you will, by that sermon and that experience. And I, I sought out the help of the people that had been supporting me and they said something very similar to what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I knew that their perspective was not coming, you know, from a place of experience or understanding. Yeah. Uh, and they but couldn't they also- themselves. But also, too, as somebody who believes in the power of three, I always say if 
the universe tells us different things from different people that have um, no relationship to each other. It's trying to tell you something. So, you know, and I'm, you know, that's the thing. I think that um, sometimes our words can be so traumatic for people unintentionally. And, but also her behavior was also traumatic as well. So I'm not going to get, I'm not going to let her off the hook. So, so how have you deconstructed your, your relationship around faith in God though, since um, it sounds like, like as a lot of person who is a person of faith, it was more about the community and what we call in the Christian tradition fellowship. Um, That was really what you loved about your congregation, but now having some perspective um, how do you, how have you re- reconstructed or deconstructed your religious, your faith in God, the universe or whatever you call it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. And you're right. It was about the community because that was a new experience for me, but mm-hmm. I had also gotten some pushback from some of the congregants that I had previously been friendly with. And, um, you know, some people had said some things that just, you know, um, caught me off guard, if you will. And it wasn't kind and it wasn't necessary. But um, the way that I've landed is I stepped away from that temple, but not away from Judaism. Okay. And so I carry that with me because it's such a big part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the pandemic was wonderful because it gave us virtual uh, <laughs> services. And as as an introvert, my goodness, I love doing high holiday services in the comfort of my own space mm-hmm. and my computer. And mm-hmm. and I still, you know, w- will attend, if you will, services, especially high holiday services through my uh, live stream on my computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to really take it in and find the meaning of what they're saying as it applies to me. And I get to take that with me wherever I go. Um, so I don't need to attend a physical congregation, um, but I do very much um, participate uh, on my own. So Melissa, I have another question about the book. And I was really, um, I when before we got on this call today, I said, yep, yeah, when I was telling Melissa how much I enjoyed her book, I mentioned that like it was sort of traumatizing for me because you had a really difficult relationship going as you were separating and divorcing from your husband, um, now ex-husband. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Um, it started out as a lot of stories. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've heard I've heard stories that don't start out so amicably. You know, the, the husbands can be angry. Mine wasn't. He wasn't surprised. He was very supportive. And it was an amicable relationship. We were, we were trying to do a gentle transition. We had an in-home separation. And sometimes it was fabulous. Sometimes it was awkward for us both. <laughs> By the time he moved out into his own space, though, and he was doing his own thing. So he was meeting other people. And whatever it is that he was telling people, he was getting some feedback that was difficult for him to manage. And Mm -hmm. so things had started to change and he Mm -hmm. was starting to get angry and Mm -hmm. he was um, showing up a little bit less, if you will. And I was fighting hard because, you know, at the center of all of this was always my needing and wanting to protect my kids and to keep them from 
a scenario like the one that I had growing up. As, right. um, my parents had a very contentious divorce and it was traumatizing. And so my, it, it wasn't that, I mean, I know that people go their own way for any number of reasons. And I don't think that people should stay in a situation that isn't working. But um, I had an allergic reaction to the idea of divorce because for me, divorce was was trauma. So I needed him and I wanted him to work with me, to co-parent with me, to model something for these kids that I knew was realistic because I had known other people that were doing it. So it's, I, it, you know, it, it wasn't that I was fantasizing about this. I had mm -hmm. actually met many women along the way that were co-parenting very successfully. Um, and unfortunately, as much as I tried, um, it just wasn't going to happen. He just wasn't there yet. He wasn't in that space to do that with me. And mm -hmm. it became, um, you know, my, my nightmare come true, so to speak. Uh, well, you know, I was thinking about that because you were so trying to hold all the pieces together. So it did not create the same situation for your children that, that was created for you when you were younger. And by trying to control every aspect of that, it ended up creating a situation that you were trying to avoid to create. Yes. I also want you to know that it's super normal. A lot of the people who come out later in life often have this very Pollyanna-ish modern day family belief about their family. Um, and, and I think that's one of those things that, especially as women, that we're really sort of used to controlling every aspect of our family's lives, often because a lot of times we're with men who are very happy for us to do that. So we're fulfilling that role. And it really comes to a shock to us when we start to get divorced and that person we were married to, who always looked for us for guidance, support, you know, at their sounding board, all of a sudden is gone. And, but also often combative. And also making it so much harder than it needs to be because they're just not present. And, and so it, the hardest thing I think sometimes to let go of is the idea of what things we think things should be. Yes. And, and instead of working with, okay, you know, he's doing something now and I'm going to have to like figure out how to do this without him because he wasn't showing up for things that were important. And also, you know, like, leaving the kids alone, although your kids were old enough to be left alone, but still not, you know, showing up when he was supposed to and things like that. And you must have been enraged. Yes. Uh, that's a good <laughs> word for it. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, because my kids were still young teenagers and right. I, um, so I, I, it was important. They had already undergone so much change. And mm -hmm. so I needed something. I wanted something to be consistent. And I was not able to see how painful it was for him. Mm -hmm. And that he was kind of stuck in there. But I was enraged. I was furious because I became this mama bear. You know, you're leaving my kids alone. You're hurting my children. I remember the emails and the letters I would send to him. I understand your desire to want to hurt me. I understand that. But do you realize hurting me hurts them? And he had separated this out. He had he had separated me from the kids. He couldn't see that it was connected. 
Um, he was hurt and I get it. He was in pain and I get it. Um, but he couldn't see that his behavior, his actions were actually hurting the kids. Um, mm -hmm. And also too, I think sometimes like you get to a point when you keep sending somebody emails and trying to talk to them that like codependent, you know, you keep seeing, thinking, you know, everybody has done that where you keep thinking, if I just say it another way, they'll finally understand. And, and, and eventually you realize that there's no amount of talking that I can do at this point to get this person to understand my perspective. And so I have to just let it go. Yeah. And that, that is a really, I feel like there's such growth in everything that happened, but man, it's painful when you're, your person that well, the person who was your person doesn't show up in the way that you thought they would or expected them to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say it that way, because when I did get to that point of saying, okay, I'm on my own now. Right. And you know, it was hard. It was an adjustment and, you know, it was silent. I was just making all of the decisions myself. I had, you know, essentially become a single parent. He was in their lives for dinner, you know, you know, occasionally, you know, take them out. Stuff. But I was make the stuff, the uncle, right. But yeah. I was making all of the hard decisions. I was in the trenches with them. And I would remember people that were dealing with their soon-to-be exes who um, did not go away. And I, I sometimes wondered, um, yeah, I wonder which is better because they were still fighting. And, you know, the husband wanted to be so involved that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it they were miserable. And so the grass isn't always greener. You know, we well, do have yeah. to water our own lawn. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree with you 100%. And also too, like, I have seen like husbands who've been really gentle with their wives and like, you know, I want you to go find out you want to, you know, and really want to be like best friends with their partner and all that stuff like that. And, um, you know, my ex-husband used to drink, he would have liked to uh, sit down and drink bourbon with my wife. My, first of all, we hate bourbon. We, we've tried, we've really tried, but we don't like bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like this, but my ex-husband also wasn't very nice to me when we were getting divorced. He was really angry. And the only thing he could control was the money. And so that's what he did. Um, and, um, and the thing is, is that I often wonder too, like if, if somebody was like, oh, I'm so in love with you, please stay, please stay, please stay. I mean, that's hard too, <laughs> when you have somebody that is just like not wanting it to end and like is showing up in all kinds of ways that they've never showed up before. And that can be really hard too. So I, I don't know which way is better, honestly, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen women who have every scenario you could name. I, I've seen it. I mean, I have, a, I have a friend who still, when they go on vacations, the ex-husband is there. So the kids are right. there, the partner's there, the ex-husband's there, holidays. And um, so I, I've seen all the examples. And I have a, I have a couple friend that they're a lesbian couple, and one of the women's ex-husbands have lived with them for the last, last eight years. I, I Like, to me, I'm sort of astounded because I would be like, you know, um, I feel like the ex-husband is missing out on a life of his own. And he's adjacent to what, you know, his ex-wife and her new wife are doing, but right. it's just very, I mean, that's my own opinion, but 
first of all, I have no idea what's going on inside of that relationship. And so probably shouldn't judge about it at all. (laughs) But like, it's like, it always makes, I find that very interesting because I find within our later in life community, people do all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Right. And that's the point that, that, you know, for as many different people that this happens to, and I say people because um, men have reached out to me since writing this book, which has astounded me. And, you know, so it happens to men as well. Um, there's for as many different people that this happens to, there's that many stories and right. uh, there's Absolutely. some universal experiences. There's mm-hmm. enough that we can reach out to one another and we can share Um mm-hmm. But then there's something unique for each of us that makes it just ever so slightly different. Mm -hmm. So here you were in your early 40s and, um, you know, you're in your first relationship with uh, someone who's not a man. And then, you know, you also dated a couple other people as well. Um, What's it like for you or from being in a relationship with somebody of, you know, who's a a woman who is appropriate for your sexual orientation versus being in a relationship with a man. How is that different for you? So there's, uh, it's an interesting journey. Uh, You know, it it really is. And um, I still liken it more to personalities. And, you know, I find that being with a woman is just a more comfortable place mm-hmm. to be. We have more shared experiences mm-hmm. and there's a, and I'm sure that there, you know, I can get called out, you know, for saying this, but my experience is that women want to do that work. They want to show up. They want to grow. They want to be emotionally available. Generally. Generally. And again, that's why I can get called out. You know, it's been my experience, right? You know, know, there's always going to be the outlier. Um, And the same is going to be true for men. You know, Mm -hmm. I've met some really fabulous men who are emotionally available. They want to grow. Um, My personal experience is I was, you know, married to a man who just was not invested in emotional growth at that time Mm -hmm. or with me. Not that we didn't try. And so for me, being with a woman is, is, is better for me, you know, Mm -hmm. I, because I'm a person that's always growing and evolving and self-awareness. And that wasn't my experience with a man. And so, um, you know, for me, I get the best of both worlds, you know, um, well, I always say that for me, um, like, uh, like a man cannot meet my emotional, spiritual physical and intellectual needs in the way that a person, a woman can. It's not because it's not because they sometimes they don't want to. It's just because they can't, because simply I'm made differently (laughs) than other people. And, you know, it's interesting for me, like to like, you know, Chippendales, the show that's out in Hulu. Do you remember, do you know, the Chippendales, do you remember them back from back in the day? They were the naked yes. dancers and stuff. Yes. You know, I, it's interesting because I was just watching, I watched the series and, and I also, I got, I did a deep dive and watched a 2020 about it. And um, one of the things I noticed is all these women going crazy over the naked man 
dance mm-hmm. than naked men dancing. And I remember going to something Chip Lundale's ask when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And I left because I, this is so stupid. I don't want to be here. And and like now it's like I like like now I say, oh, well, that's probably because I was a lesbian and I, you know, I was a lesbian and just didn't interest me. But it's like to me, it's also like not being like, why didn't I make the connection? Like, why didn't I? Because things were popping up then for me, you know, like being attracted to girls and stuff like that. But how come I just didn't make the connection at that point? Right. And I think we a lot of us have that experience. You know, that's just not how, you know, the environment for me personally, I wasn't raised in this environment to (laughs) have language, explore your feelings. Um, There weren't role models. You know, I grew up in the 70s. the product of heterosexual parents in a neighborhood that was all heterosexual, Mm -hmm. uh, family oriented. Um, The television shows, you know, all had, you know, some version of heterosexuality, the music, you know, all of it. And so there's a combination of things. We just don't go there um, and we're not invited to, and we're not giving those skills to as well. And I think that's what's the difference between us and Gen Z, because Gen Z, I mean, I think 30% of them, 25% of them identify as LGBTQ. And I think that the difference is, is they've had representation. They've had queer characters on TV, even so my, my older two, older three are 27 to 32. And my youngest is 20. And my youngest has had more exposure to that than my other three when they were growing up. You know, I mean, there's gay characters on his TV shows forever. And so I think that's the huge difference now because people are like, oh, it's just a phase. And, you know, both of us can roll our eyes at that one. But I just think people have language now. People have examples. People see queer couples in the media. People see queer queer characters on TV shows that are not the punchline. Right. And it matters. And it matters. And and, and that's why I'm out there talking about this because representation matters language matters we need to be visible it's what was missing for me and for a lot of people that i know and there's other variables you know not not to just you know pigeonhole that um but it does matter to be out there and um to represent and to be visible it's it's very important that we share our stories and 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 that's like one of the things that like so in 2018 when i made my first website my website designer did something about like seeing who else was out there. There was nobody else doing coming out coaching when I started in 2018. And now there's tons of people that do it and some really good ones out there. And what I want to say is that in the later in life community, I think even when Melissa came out, you know, we were a subset of sometime within the late greater lesbian community. And we felt like such a minority in there. But even in your book, it was so interesting. You kept saying, well, this person came out later in life and this person came out later in life. And so you found a community very quick, you know, within the later in life community. But I think what has shifted, which I have noticed, even like in the Facebook groups, people that have been out a long time now realize that there's a lot of women that come out later in life. And I think they didn't realize that before. Mm -hmm. I, I am in the South. A lot of women come out later in life in the South just because of, you know, the 
conservative Christianity that permeates the South. They get married young. They realize they're not straight in their 20s and 30s. So a lot of women have been married with children and stuff like that. And I think what you're doing with your message and with such a great book is that you're saying, hey, you know, there's lots of us who don't figure this out until we're 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And my oldest clients have been 75. Right. So, I mean, there's people that find it all, figure it out, all kinds of things. And I think that's the message both of us want to share. It's okay to figure it out later. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. We all we all take the path that we're on and we continue on it or we detour and it's okay. And I've just been loving meeting people across the age range from all over the country. And I say the name of my book, Late Bloomer, and they go, oh, I'm a late bloomer, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a woman in her 80s, you mm-hmm. know, who said, oh, I'm a, I, I was a late bloomer. And mm-hmm. I just met another one recently. I was a late bloomer. And there's a documentary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about her. Um, and it's fascinating. And mm-hmm. and I love it. And so this isn't something new, but yeah, I think being able, be able, being able to talk about it now is mm-hmm. is what is new-ish and so important. Um, yeah. And the, just the fact that I just say the name of my book and so many people immediately, you know, want to do a Me Too. Me too. You know, I, you know, I'm part of that. I'm part of that. I get you. That resonates. And I love that. So when you were coming out, did you have a coming out song? Um, I love this song. Well, I, you know, music is so important to me. I had a lot. Um, I really love this song, Own, by Jennifer mm-hmm. Nettles, who I will um, confess, although anybody that knows me knows this, was my girl crush. Uh, I just absolutely, you know, uh, love Jennifer Nettles and she sings it with Jennifer Hudson. Just if you listen to the power behind it, the energy behind it, the message behind it, um, you know, everything just resonates with somebody on this journey that Mm -hmm. you are stronger than, you know, um, live the life you're meant to live. Um, Mm -hmm. just think it says it all, um, and live the life you were born to live. And then we all need to do that when we find out what that is may vary a little bit, but once you do, by all means, uh, go and, for it. And by the way, folks, this happens to everybody. doesn't mean that all of us are queer or gay or anything. What I mean by this is that it's really normal in midlife at 40 something, 35 for some people, 55 for others, um, that you question everything that you've been told. and and is the life you're living the live the life you want to be living, or is it the life you've been told to live? Yes. And it and and also too, it's really normal to question. So whether you're gay or straight, it's okay to question. Um, you know, is this right for me? And and it can be about other things too. For Melissa and I, it was about our sexuality and other things. But it was also about you know, for you, it could be about you you know you know your job, you know your marriage. There can be all different reasons why we question. But it's like we're supposed to do that. Yes. <laughs> we are supposed to do that. I agree. I so, think it's healthy. I think it's healthy. It's really healthy. So, can you tell me a book or a movie that really changed your perspective on things? Um, well, I can give you both. The, the book that I had referenced earlier was Sing Me Home by Jody Picoult. I loved that book and I was reading it at the time that I was having these feelings uh, for Raya. Um, but the, the movie City of Angels just speaks to me. 
and just that he was so curious. And I love that. And he made the leap. You know, he gave up eternity. He made the leap. Um, and when he lost it, he didn't regret it. It just, you know, was something that was so powerful for me that mm -hmm. you can make such a drastic change and to come into your own, to experience something so wonderful, so beautiful. Um, and even if it's not guaranteed for your life, just to hold on to that experience. So City of Angels is just one of those movies I can watch over and over and over again. How do you describe your life today, Melissa? Oh, my goodness. It has been a ride. Um, I could never have imagined being here um, if you had asked me 10 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. If you had asked me five years ago, I'd have a book out. People would be reaching out to me, you know, thanking me or, you know, coming out themselves after reading my book that mm -hmm. I'd be sitting here talking to you. And, and we would have this conversation because we just get it. And mm -hmm. I always tell people, you'll find your people. Mm -hmm. And and I have. And it is a ride. And um, and I'm just, you know, going with it and seeing where it takes me. But uh, it's a good life. And I'm grateful for the opportunities and I'm grateful for the people that mm -hmm. have shown up and who are reaching out um, because I want to help others the way others helped me. So it's a good, uh, it's a good life. Okay. Now it's the time for self-promotion, Melissa. Uh, <laughs> where can people find you? And the name of her book is Late Bloomer, Finding My Authentic Self at Midlife. I am a late bloomer. I like this book a real lot. Um, I think there's a lot, and especially if you're somebody who is going through this process, you will connect with so many things that Melissa says. So if you've never talked to another person that's come out on later in life, she's really hit the nail on, on the head with this book. And so I really love it. It was a really great read. I read it on the airplane, read it in four hours. I was, it's, a, it's not a quick read, but I was able to, I had concentrated time. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. People can find me. I have a website, melissagyberson.com. Um, I am on Facebook and um, on the website, there's an email. I, I love when people reach out to me, either Facebook um, or email. And, you know, I received one this morning that just made me so happy that somebody was reading the book. They found me on a Google search and she thanked me how much it resonated. So my website, Facebook, I'm on Instagram uh, uh, as well. Um, yeah, I love hearing from people. It's great. Well, thank you. Melissa Diberson. Thank you for writing Late Bloomer, Finding My Authentic Self at Midlife. It is a great read, and I wish you nothing but the biggest success with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful uh, chatting with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.